Hello. Hi, Serena. Uh, one sec. Good. Just putting the paper up in a Chrome tab so I can switch back and forth. Oh, do you want to share the paper also in the chat, maybe? Oh, okay. Share the room or the paper? No, no, the, the paper in the room chat in case people want to. Okay. Thank you. There's no genetics. It's so annoying, the topics that's so... <laughs> what do you mean there's no genetics in telomeres? No, I mean for the topics to choose. Hi, Frank. Oh, our guest speaker. Hi, Rachel. I'm inviting you to speak. So uh, on the top um, of your screen, there should be an option to either accept or not accept uh, to speak. If you would click on uh, accept to speak, we, you can talk with us. Hey, how are you? So the unmute button should be all the way on the bottom right. There should be a little microphone button. And um, if you press on it, you're unmuted and we can hear you. Is that the same thing on the desktop app, Serena? I can't. I've, I've never seen it in the desktop app. I'm only oh. on the phone. If not, I have to really uh, switch really quick to explain it to. Re oh, there you go. There you go. Hi. Can you hear me now? Yeah. yeah sorry, it's, it you. wasn't on the bottom right, but there's a window, so it was kind of obvious. Just took me. Oh, sorry. Yeah, it's the <laughs> desktop app. I rarely use it, and uh, I always forget. Like. I don't have it in my mind's eye to visualize where it is exactly. And so you uh, got the slides I sent earlier? Yeah, if you check um, on the top of the room, there should be a link to your slides. You oh want. yeah, I see it, perfect. Great, um, yeah, I hope you're doing well. Thank you so much for taking the time. We really appreciate it. No, this is great. I'm looking forward to it. This is a new venue for me, so I'm, I'm interested to see how this goes. Oh, cool. Perfect. So usually, so I will introduce you in a few minutes, in like around four minutes, and then 
usually uh, one of the one of us will ask um, a general question, but I wanted to check if that's okay with you. Uh, more about your um, like about in general how you cho chose the career to become a scientist and things like that. If that's okay. And then, and then it would be, you know, the time for your talk. Are you still there? Yes. Oh, you couldn't hear me? I'm sorry. Uh, can you hear me now? Yeah. Okay. I can hear you, Katerina. Okay. Dr. O'Neill, can you hear us? Uh, seem to have uh, some mic issue or something. Uh, yeah, let no. me. I can. We heard you a little bit. Uh, I have no idea okay. what happened. Oh, not fine. Yeah, now it's fine. Now it's okay. okay. Yep. I don't know what had happened. Okay, so I didn't hear what you said. You wanted to ask mm -hmm. a question, and that's the last I heard. Oh yeah, if it's okay if we start like after introducing you, um, if we start with a more general question about you know how you became a scientist type of question and in that field, if that's okay. Um, if not, we can also skip it and go right ahead to your presentation. We feel like for um, young scientists or young people, it's good to hear that, but. Uh, yeah, we can also. Absolutely. Okay, yeah, great. that's not a problem at all. Perfect. Um, yeah. Hello, thank you very much for joining us, Doctor. No, thank I'm you for having me. me. I'm excited. Me too. I was looking at your paper. I'm quite excited to hear uh, your speech, actually, and I've got um, some questions already. <laughs> so, <looking laughs> good. We want more questions. Are you guys still there? Yeah, yep, we're, we're still, still sorry, we're still here. We're just setting things up. Thank you. No problem. No problem. How are you this evening? I'm all right. It's like my bedtime, but it's good. Oh, I'm so sorry. <laughs> I'm just kidding. It's not quite, but yeah. Well, start this early. Will be, this will be nice and relaxed for you. Just in time for uh time for you to go to bed afterwards. So most people talk for about 20, 30 minutes and then there's questions. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, we can That's do it anyway. Sorry, Katrina, please, please go. No, it's fine. You, you go. Oh, sorry. Yeah. We just, um, yeah, normally about 20, 30 minutes as, um, you know, the average, eh, depending on what anyone has to say. Um, but we like to, uh, allow the speaker quite, uh, a lot of the decisions on how you want to do it. Um, okay. You can either give your speech, uh, give your talk, and then get questions at the end. Or if you're comfortable, you could um, say if anyone wants to ask any questions, um, we can, you know, let a couple of people up in the middle if that's appropriate. Um, this is really to suit you. You know, we're here to listen. So whatever you have to say, we're here to hear it. So that's, you just that's relax and let it go. Okay. <laughs> these things here. Right. And uh, what were you doing today then, Doctor? 
let's have some small talk where we're setting everything and getting everybody all in line for you. How are you today? What's been happening? Uh, what has been happening? You know, it's been a Monday. And I just say, I hate Mondays. <laughs> in general. <laughs> Then we're doubly thankful that you actually came on a Monday then. <laughs> no, it's a great way to end the day. It's a, it's a good reminder that, you know, science can be fun. What Do about you, know, you guys? How are you guys doing? I'm doing really yeah, well. It's always... 2 a.m. in the morning for me. I'm in Scotland, but I'll go Serena. Uh, that's beyond I was going to ask. I was going to say, yeah, that sounds like an accent. Yeah, Mondays can yeah. be rough. Um, try to take them in moderation. <laughs> That's a great way to put it. Yeah, my Monday was not great, but this is great. <laughs> I agree. Yeah, this is often the highlight for Mondays. <laughs> okay, I think we can uh, slowly go ahead and start. And um, so, welcome everyone to the Science Society. Um, it's another wonderful week with an amazing guest speaker here today. Um, let me introduce you to Dr. Rachel O'Neill. Uh, she will be talking about her really interesting research. Um, and she is uh, the director of the Institute for System Genomics um, Center for Genome Innovation and Institute for um, the Professor of Genetics and Genomics at the Department of Molecular and Cell Biology um, at the Yukon uh, Health. And um, she received her bachelor with highest honors in zoology uh, from the University of Texas at Austin and her PhD in genetics and human variation from La Trobe University. And currently she's a professor at the University of Connecticut in the Department of Molecular and Cell Biology. And um, she's um, the co-director of the iPS cell and chromosome core. And um, Dr. Neil has built her career on understanding how genomes maintain stability over time. And her research group at the University of Connecticut uses molecular, cytogenetic, and computational approaches to study genomic conflict involvement in retroelement transcription and centromere function and the role of novel small RNAs and chromosomal and genome stability. Um, yeah, her lab um, uses um, a lot of really um, cut, <laughs> like novel cutting edge techniques and um, she um yeah she she received um awards and honors um and um it's a really great pleasure of having you here and we are so honored that you took the time to come here today and um i believe jamie would like to ask you um, a couple of questions before we start with your presentation thank you no, thank you. That's a fantastic introduction, and it's great to be here this evening. Thank you very much. I'd like to just, uh, again, officially thank you for joining us, uh, Dr. O'Neill. And um, so here's what we'd like to just ask, because it's became quite a popular part. 
Um, basically, as I like to put it, we like to know your origin story, what helped you become a superhero of science, as I like to put it. Um, if you could tell us, um, how did you get into science in the first place? And what was it that fascinated you about it and brought you on this uh, this trip? Was it a windy road? Was it a straight road? We'd love to hear it. Um, so that's, <laughs> it's a great question because I think pretty much until recently, I kind of didn't know what I wanted to be when I grew up. And it took me a really long time to figure out, oh, wait, I'm growing up and I'm doing what I want to do. Huh. How did that happen? Um, so I guess I was always a science nerd, but didn't know it. So I'm that student that went to university and changed majors six times. Um, I started undecided and moved from everything from archaeology to English to astronomy. Um, and finally, I ended up in biology and I had an amazing biology instructor. Um, and I did some research as an undergrad um, with David Gilbert studying sexual selection and mating behavior in butterflies. And I was always going to be a behavioral biologist at that point. That's what I knew I was going to be. And that didn't work out. Um, I got married, ended up in Australia. Um, and after working for a couple of years, decided, you know, I'm, I'm really bored. I really do like asking interesting questions. Maybe I'll do a PhD. Uh, and I got um, hooked up with this amazing scientist named Jenny Graves at La Trobe University who just recently was inducted into the National Academy of Sciences and the Order of Australia. She was an amazing scientist and really inspired me to just be inquisitive. And I got hooked on chromosomes at that point and kind of never looked back um, and just kind of followed the path as it presented itself. There wasn't really a plan. <laughs> and I know a lot of people talk about, oh, you know, I had a plan. I was an undergrad and I knew I was going to do this and that and the other. And I find that most of the time that's not the case. Um, but looking back, it worked out really well. Opportunities presented themselves to me. I took them. Um, there's been bumps along the road. Absolutely. Disappointments, 100%. Experiments that didn't work. Questions that didn't pan out. Um, PIs that weren't great. Students that weren't great. But in the end, I've had an amazing group of people that I've worked with um, in my career. And I can say... You just got to follow what you're excited about, which is super cheesy, but super true. Oh, no, that is an absolutely fantastic answer. It's actually quite inspiring. Um, a great number of speakers have, have told a similar um, tale of curiosity and follow it wherever you go. And actually, that leads me to two last questions before we get into the talk. One of them is, what is it then that brought you to the specific topic you'll be talking to tonight? Like, what, what is it that fascinated you enough to to dedicate your time to this paper and actually this is this is my curiosity you have a wonderfully eclectic um selection of things you studied did any of that in any way help your outlook and, and observational um abilities in doing this one thing now or uh yeah so? so i can answer the second question first and that's 100 percent yes um and i think the second question actually led me to the first right so I was very interested in um, the genetic and genomic mechanisms that lead to species diversity. And, and really the question that I found really driving my curiosity from grad school is 
how do you have some species groups that have very diverse chromosome numbers like horses and gibbons um, and marsupials, the marsupials that I was working in? And how do you have some that are really karyotypically pretty boring like cats? Um, and what are the factors that influence that rapid change? And at that point, I was really inspired by the work of Barbara McClintock. I thought that transposable elements were really cool um, and really wanted to understand how they related to repeat rich portions of the genome that seemed to be more involved in chromosome rearrangements than any other. And that's centromeres, telomeres, and breakpoints. And what got me into the, to the human telomere to telomere project is frustration in dealing with not being able to answer those questions because those were the last vestiges of genomes that we could actually assemble. And for me to be able to really do what I truly loved, which is comparative genomics, we really need a better ability to assemble genomes. And that's what got me into the human project because I'm like, you know what? If we can work out the methods to do it here, we can do it on all of these different species and then the world is your oyster. Um, so that's kind of how I got into it. Wow, <laughs> that's incredible. Um, thank you so much for thank you so much for sharing that uh, with us. And uh, so whenever you're ready, please, the floor is yours, Doctor. Sure. Um, so I'll I'll just walk you through some slides and I'm actually gonna start on slide two, which kind of also answers the question. And and that is what my lab really focuses on. And it's it's using genomics to study diversity adaptation and chromosome evolution in a broad range of species. And what I er learned early on is that there's no one model to study this question. You really need a comparative approach. Um, and so that got me really interested in looking at all of these different species. And, and along the way, I, I you know entered into some marine genomics. We're doing some deep ocean genomes. Um, and so this is pictures of just some of the species that we work on. We're working on probably over 40 different species now. Um, but I'll talk to you today about the work that I got involved in with the telomere to telomere project. Um, and on slide three, you can see the, a snapshot of just some of the people that were involved in this project. And it's actually a much bigger group of over 100 scientists. Um, and I, I call it sort of a, a self-aggregating group of people. Um, because it really was an open invitation. It was, it was completely collaborative and open science. Um, and it really was to develop resources for the human or a human genome um, to the best we possibly could. So there were no science secrets. There was no competition. It was really, truly a great experience. And I entered into it, um, as I mentioned, wanting to understand how transposable elements, and in particular retro elements, which are capable of, of transcribing themselves, might actually have a role in centromere function. So it was a fairly straightforward question. Um, but we figured out pretty early on as the human genome was being redone um, that there was a much bigger question we needed to ask. And I sort of present that on slide four, which is... Um, how good are the repeat annotations in the human genome assembly now that we've uncovered 8% of the human genome? So up until um, this particular assembly effort, 8% had been relegated to gaps, um, unassembled contigs, or were completely missing altogether. 
And so we've now backfilled all of that. And that was really an effort led by Adam Philippi, Karen Miga, um, and Evan Eichler, which are the top three individuals in this picture. And as they developed these resources, we're like, okay, we're just going to look at transposable elements and centromeres. And they were like, wait a minute, we need to take a step back. We've never looked at these regions. We really need to annotate those repeats. And we need to understand what is a transposable element and what isn't. And so that sort of got us going down this path of asking, how accurate is our repeat database? How accurate are our tools to actually take a genome and say, this is a gene, this is a repetitive sequence, this is an enhancer, this is a promoter, et cetera, now that we had all this additional information. Um, and as you can see in slide five, this is really what our team was tasked with. Um, and this is a group that I'm really happy to say was led by, by students, by trainees. So Savannah Hoyt up in the upper left is a grad student in my lab, as is Patrick Grady and Gabby Hartley. Um, and they really drove our side of the project. Um, and that's in collaboration with Jessica Storrs, a postdoc in Arian Smith's lab. And as you can see on the bottom, a bunch of other um, students and postdocs from many labs, uh, including Dan Olson from Travis Wheeler's lab, Luke Wajenski from Leighton Core's lab, Charles Lamoose from Aaron Strait's lab, um, Leo DeLima from Jen Gurton's lab, and, and Reza Halabian and Matthias Rodriguez from Mocek Malowski's lab. And, and it was really great to work with all of these labs across the globe on all of these projects. Um, and what we did was we wanted to know, with a new genome assembly, can we further classify and correct if there are any errors all the retro elements, and that includes um, short interspersed nuclear elements, signs, endogenous retroviruses, SVAs, and lines. Class two elements, which are DNA transposons and helotrons, structural RNAs, such as tRNAs. And we also wanted to annotate tandem repeats. So that included simple and low complexity repeats from anything from like TA, 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 to a more complex repeat, maybe a 20 base pair repeat over and over, to satellite sequences and satellite variants. And I have to say a huge shout out to Karen Megan, and Nick Altimos, who were in the Sensat team, because they did a really deep dive into the centromeric satellites, but we annotated the satellites everywhere else in the genome. We also identified and annotated um, complex or composite repeats which are arrayed in many, many um, hundreds of kilobases in the human genome. And I'll talk a little bit more about those in a second. And really at any time, if you guys have questions, stop me. Um, I'm totally fine taking questions. So um, if we go to slide six, I'm not gonna go into the gory details um, and I'm more than happy to share this pipeline um, and talk about it in detail if somebody would like to hear about it. But what we did was we took the human genome. So this is a new reference. And this reference was um, possible because it was based in a, on a, a cell line that was haploid. And so this happens early in, in human development. It's a rare um, form where you get a haploid cell that actually duplicates. And so both alleles are exactly identical. And it's called a hydatidiform mole. And that actually allowed um, the scientists that were on the assembly team to develop algorithms to actually tease apart what this genome assembly should look like. We then took that assembly and took every repeat that had ever been identified in the human um, database 
and mass the assembly. That basically means we blocked those sequences, turned them into Xs. And then we took everything that was left and then put it through a repeat identification pipeline to identify new repeats um, throughout the genome. And then we merged those two data sets. And so we didn't want to be redundant in what we already knew, but we wanted to make sure that those annotations were correct and then identify anything new that had been missed. Um, and we called that uh, repeat masker two annotation or RM2. And then with the availability of this high coverage single nucleotide resolution genome assembly, we were able to intersect all of those repeat annotations through a manual curation process shown in the middle on the left, where we intersected it with genes, segmental duplications. These are large pieces of DNA that are duplicated across the genome, um, known repeat annotations, and then we compared the alignments of all of those annotations to make sure that the classification strategy was accurate. We also looked at gaps like regions of the genome where repeat masker just could not identify the repeat, which it's very prone to missing a lot of repeats, particularly tandem repeats. Um, and used a new tool that Dan Olson, a grad student in Travis Wheeler's lab had designed called Ultra. And then by intersecting all of these, we were able to get a really good high quality repeat database for the human genome. We were able to take anything that was questionable and set it aside for future analysis. So we had really highly accurate calls. And then we merged everything and compiled that into a refined repeat masker track for the human assembly. But then we decided to take it one step further. And because this assembly was partially based on a long read sequencing platform known as Oxford Nanopore, um, we could actually isolate CPG methylation calls and find all the, the cytosine um, in CPG dinucleotides that were methylated and annotate those across the genome. And that's work that a grad student named Ariel Gershman did from Winston Timms lab, and then intersect that with our repeats to get an idea of methylation and repeat status. And then we took that even one more step further and performed an experiment called ProSeq, where we um, actually identified all sites of RNA polymerase occupancy across the genome. So now we can actually define the sequences that are actively transcribed or where RNA polymerase may sit. And so this can give us signals of enhancers, promoters, and active transcription across the genome. So now we can add, add a functional component to these repetitive sequences. And if you look at slide seven, this is sort of giving you a summary of where everything is. And so if we take those different classifications and we say, I just want to look at transposome element, class one and class two. And what we find is what we kind of already knew, 46% of the genome is transposable elements. Um, the repeat content of the entire genome is about 53%. So the vast majority of the genome is repetitive. So this was a huge effort. And if we look at where those repeats are located across um, all of the different chromosomes in the genome, and so the chromosomes in this circos plot on the left um, are listed at the top, the top circle, or the outermost circle. And then moving inwards, we have signs. And then um, in row two, we have lines. In row three, we have LTRs. And in row four, we have retrotransposons. So these are all different types of, of transposable elements. And what you can see, and I've highlighted one example with the red box, is that there is um, a general distribution across the genome of all of these, but in some cases, there's a bias towards one type or another um, 
in certain subregions of the genome. And the, the example I'm giving you here is chromosome 19. So we can see a high density of signs um, and a low density of lines that occur in the same places. And so that's going to be interesting to follow up in the future. Um, we also took in the bottom right all of the repeats that had been identified in GRCH38, which is the previous human genome assembly that's been sitting around for over a decade, and then said, how many of those repeats are in exactly the same location with the exact same annotation in our new assembly? And the vast majority of them lifted, so they were shared, and that's over 4.5 million. And that was to be expected. It was kind of surprising that we found over 20,000 that were unlifted. That means they were unique to either one or the other genome. Now, um, what we show in the graph on the right is what's um, shown with the red blocks. Those are the ones that are in non-syntenic regions. So those are the ones that are sitting in what were gaps in GRCH38 that have now been filled in in CHM13, the new assembly. So that was to be expected. What we didn't expect was the high number in gray that you can see um, between 60 and 80 percent. They're in completely syntenic regions, but all of a sudden we have a new transposable element that is now annotated in CHM13. And this can result from one of two things, either a collapse in the assembly, and that can happen because a lot of these repetitive sequences do get collapsed and they get lost in the assembly algorithms, um, or they're de novo insertions, which means that we have quite a bit more TE variation in the human population than we had previously considered. And so as we dive into more genomes, these kinds of questions will be answered. Um, if you look on slide eight, this is kind of, there's a lot going on on this slide. Um, but really what this was is a way for us to say, okay, now that we've got a complete human genome for the first time, with every single base annotated, we can say, okay, I'm going to take all the ALU Y elements, and that's a hot sign element. So um, full-length copies of ALU Y can still transcribe and actually are um, non-autonomous and can mobilize in the genome and create human variation. And so now for the first time, we can say, let's look at every single ALU Y copy in this genome. And let's ask, what's the transcriptional profile? Where does RNA polymerase sit in that one sequence across the genome? Or where, does, where are the CPG methylated calls? Um, and what is the divergence of these sequences across the genome? And how unique are each of these? And so what we end up getting is a profile of each of the hot elements in the genome at a genome scale. And that's what these um, maps are to show. And they also show that each of the elements has a slightly different profile. So for example, ALUI is on the left. We see a link between um, methylation calls and RNA polymerase occupancy, which you can see with the, the bright purple, um, the deeper purple that actually goes in two bars uh, vertically. What we can also see is that as sequences diverge, um, they become they have lower transcript numbers and less RNA polymerase occupancy, and that probably means they're being inactivated. And this is slightly different than what we see for line elements, which are the group that are shown on the right. And line elements, um, at least L1HSs, are still mobile. They can still, um, they're autonomous elements, so they can create um, mutations in the human genome that can inactivate genes, create rearrangements, et cetera, et cetera. 
And what we see in the profile is that these full-length L1HS elements, which are still potentially capable of mobilization, have a beautiful RNA polymerase occupancy peak right at their transcription start site, and that's shown in that deep purple. But as they become truncated, um, they actually lose that transcriptional signal. They also lose their CPG methylation signal. And that's because line elements tend to be five prime truncated. And so you get a slightly different pattern when you look at the purple and the blue on the far, far right um, between full length and truncated elements, because we see that loss of CPG methylation because it's a complete deletion of that promoter. So it's, it's the genome defense mechanism, basically. And if we go to slide um, nine, it's slightly different than what we see for older elements. And that's what I'm showing you here on the left. Um, this is an L1PB which is an older line that we share with our primate relatives. And you can see that, that the RNA polymerase occupancy signal is pretty much gone, right? So if these things actually do have a little bit of RNA polymerase, it's probably read through transcription. They're not promoting their own transcription anymore. And so now we can classify every single element across the genome with these patterns. And that gives us a great resource for studying them when they're different among different individuals or among different disease states. So if you remember, the, the question that I said that sort of got me in this game was I really just wanted to know, are transposable elements involved in centromere function? And centromeres are, in humans at least, are highly repetitive, satellite-rich regions. And it's been, it's been observed in certain cases of human disease um, and in normal cells that there are transcripts that seem to come from these satellites. And what has always been a mystery is those satellite sequences don't have their own promoter. So how is transcription happening? What is actually promoting transcription? What is um, causing RNA polymerase to actually sit and transcribe these sequences? And so one of the theories that we'd had is that perhaps it's transposable elements. They're inserted into these regions and they can promote transcription not only of themselves, but of nearby sequences. And what we find when we look at this, this assembly is that, in fact, that's not the case. Um, we actually took a multi-pronged approach. We did a genome-dependent, mapping-dependent approach where we looked at every single transcript in our ProSeq data and asked exactly where does this come from in the genome. But then that's confusing because with this highly repetitive satellite sequences, you may be getting transcription from one satellite, but if there are a million copies of that satellite, it's only going to map to one place in the genome and not know exactly where it is. So you're going to dilute your signal. And so we took a genome-dependent mapping independent approach where we actually took our repeat annotations and looked at our raw proseq reads before mapping them to the genome and asked, what is their, um, what are they composed of? Do they actually have transposable elements in them? Do they have satellites that may actually be derived from these locations? And because we had single nucleotide resolution, we could identify specific sequences at specific locations. Um, and this is, I'm showing you here just an example of one of the centimeters that we found. Um, on the very top panel, that's a zoom of the centromeric region and some of the pericentromeres. So the, the higher order repeat away arrays that tend to define active centromeres are shown in bright red. 
Um, and right in the middle of that is what's called the CDR. And that is something that Ariel Gershman identified called the centromere dip region. And it's kind of a mystery still. We, we really don't know what this is doing. We know every centromere in humans has this. Um, and we've identified it in uh, the second human genome assembly that's now come out, which is HG002. And that is despite the fact that all of these sequences that are sitting in these bright red regions are highly identical, they're short, about 180, 190 base pair sequences just repeated in tandem over and over and over, we see a very distinct drop in methylation. And where that CDR drop in methylation is, is where centromeric specific nucleosomes assemble and that's the site of kinetic or attachment, that, that, that point of the centromere that actually functions to have the spindles attach and facilitate chromosome segregation. So we still don't understand why this happens in a very specific way. We do know from this high scale, high depth annotation that we do have transposable elements that are inserted into these regions. And I'm showing you that here on the left, that's called an embed. That's a line one trans, uh, transposable element. It is actively transcribed. That's what that positive and negative transcriptional signal is, but it doesn't overlap with the CDR. Um, what it does do though, however, is mark a transition in general methylation between the pericentromere and the centromeric core. So we actually think these elements are doing something um, and they're defining epigenetic states that span large chunks of DNA. We also see clusters of some of these TEs that occur in these centromeric regions. We call these young TE islands. And as you can see on the right panel, um, this is a subset of some of them that we find between the higher order array and the pericentromere, which is shown in dark red. Um, and you can see in the repeat masker two annotation track, which is in gold, all of these green blocks, and those are those um, TE islands. And they're very actively transcribed. So you can see lots of positive and negative signals. So they're bi-directionally transcribed. And at the very bottom, you can see that they do mark major transition states in methylation. Um, but again, they don't overlap with that centromere assembly region. So they're doing something else in defining the epigenetic state of, of these centromeres, but we're not quite sure what yet. So if you go to slide 11, we can now transition from TEs to all the other repeats. And this is where we made some pretty interesting discoveries. Um, so in total, we actually identified 62 new repeats that we added to the human repeat database. And that doesn't mean 62 copies, that means 62 individual types of repeats, but millions of copies of them. Um, and they fall into many different categories. We had new satellite variants um, that were part of centromeres that had never been identified, satellite arrays that occurred on chromosome arms that had never been identified, um, as well as these composite elements that I'll talk about in a minute, and a few unclassified repeats that we're still not quite sure what they are. So what I'm showing you on the bottom here is the human karyotype. Um, in red, are what we define as the complete centromeric regions. So that's all the centromeric satellite rich regions, um, plus um, quite a bit of DNA on the left and right. And then on the left of each chromosome, you can see a navy block. And those are the gaps um, compared to GRCH38. So that's all sequences that got filled in in this particular genome assembly. And you can see that all the telomeres have a little blip of that. The centromeres have a giant block of that, and then they're scattered throughout little blocks that had been filled in. 
if we were to transpose on that, as you can see in slide 12, um, the actual sequences that we identified with composites, satellites, and new arrays, and red, teal, and navy, um, actually it's kind of a purple color, you can see that we see those really enriched in those centromeric regions where we had those gaps. We find them in other gaps, such as the telomeres, but we also find them in non-gap regions. And this was kind of a mystery to us at first. We're like, wait a minute, we already had these sequences. Why weren't these repeats annotated in the last assembly? And we think what happens is that because many of these repeats are in higher copy number in the gap regions, that allowed the repeat modeler algorithms to actually identify them as a repeat and classify them elsewhere in the genome. So we're able to give a more refined map of where some of these repeat elements are genome-wide, right? So it's not just about filling in that 8%, but really refining that 53% of the genome. If you go to slide 13, this is one of the types of repeats that we identified um, that we think are really interesting uh, because the vast majority of them were collapsed in GRCH38, meaning they were either in one copy or completely missing. And this is actually building on work from HG18, which is in two steps back in the Human Genome Assembly. Um, and a scientist named Peter Warburton had actually identified some of these based on some back sequences back in the day. And what we've done is actually found not only these, but several more, 19 total composite sequences in the human genome. Um, and they're defined as composites because, as you can see here with the one example um, called ACRO, they actually are uh, a block of sequences that they themselves have repetitive sequences in them. So ACRO has a, a repeat that was previously known as, as ACRO. It has an L1M, which is a line element in L1P, um, a MER element, and then these blue repetitive sequences. And then that whole chunk, that 7KB chunk, is then repeated in a tandem array. And this particular copy that I'm showing you here is repeated 44 times, right? And then there are copies of that repeated elsewhere in the genome. Many of them are in array form, and they would be defined as composites. If there exists as a singleton, just one copy of that 7KB fragment, it's probably derived by segmental Sorry, duplication. Sorry, say that again? <laughs> I love Siri. I hate her. Um, and the, these tandem arrays, we're not quite sure how they form, but what we do know is that they can expand and contract in different regions of the genome. What's even more interesting is that some of them carry exons and coding regions. And so I've shown an example of that at the bottom called GAGE, which has these exon sequences um, that are shown in sort of a maroon color that are, are then tandemly repeated. In fact, there are 19 copies on the X chromosome. So this can lead to gene copy variation um, and understanding what these genes may do and what that copy variation may lead to is, is sort of a, the next big question that we can ask with this data. I guess one example of a well-known composite is actually TSPY, which is on the Y chromosome, which we're just finishing now. And it's of clinical relevance. So smaller copy numbers of that TSPY composite actually lead to azoospermia, so a lack of sperm. So there is a clinical um, consequence of that gene copy number. If we go to the next slide, 
Um, this is sort of a, a summary of sort of everything that we've seen, right? So because, as I mentioned before, I'm a comparative genomicist, doing just the human genome and comparing CHM13, which is the top row, to the previous assembly, GRCH38, I needed to actually compare it to a bunch of other primates because that is the power in understanding what these repeats may be doing. And what I'm showing you here is just a repeat copy number scale. So the darker the color, um, the more copies there are of that specific repeat. And I'm showing you the different types of repeats that we identified in addition to the transposable elements, including the novel repeats, the satellite variants, novel arrays. So these are all satellite arrays of short sequences that are in tandem arrays. We um, actually decided to name them after the satellites of Jupiter. That's why there's a random planet picture in there. Um, because previously, satellite arrays that were non-centromeric had been given the nomenclature HSAT. Um, and you can see that in the satellite variants that we see on the left there, HSAT um, 5, HSAT 1, HSAT 2. And sort of doing this comparative approach, we realized, wait a minute, some of these actually are found in our um, great ape and even um, lesser ape relatives. So calling them a human-specific satellite would kind of be a misnomer. So we decided to take something completely genome agnostic, like a planet. And what you can see um, when we also look at these and the composites, we have far more copy numbers in CHM13 than we did in GRCH38, and far more than we have in our grade eight relatives, as well as other primate relatives going right down the phylogenetic tree. And this can mean one of two things. One, these are human-specific or human-enriched repeats, and this may give us some indication of, of things that make us human, which, you know, everybody kind of wants to know about. Or they're a, a sign of the lower-quality assemblies that we have for many of these species, although I have to note that, that three of the great ape assemblies um, and one of the uh, pan troglodytes assembly, which is a chimpanzee, are actually really, really good assemblies. So these actually may be human specific, but it sort of highlights the need for doing a telomere to telomere based assembly approach when we're doing comparative genomics, because it can reveal things that may actually have significant impact in a species specific way. And um, they can also highlight what might have impact within a species. And that's sort of what I'm highlighting on slide 15. And so at the time that we went to press with this paper, we had the complete X chromosome for CHM13, that haploid cell line. And we had one chromosome at the time for another cell line called HG002. So these are two completely unrelated individuals. And we compared just the repetitive content of those two X chromosomes. And when we compared that repetitive content, and I'm sort of showing you that um, annotated across the karyotype and showing you what the names are, but also in that heat map, what we can see is that right across the entire chromosome, there's quite a bit of repeat variation. In fact, we found almost 220 KB of sequence difference between just these two single chromosomes. If we extrapolate that genome-wide, that's over 10 megabases of repeat differences across the genomes, excluding the centromeric regions. So there's quite a bit of variation that does exist um, in the human population. And some of those that I've noted, such as GAGE, CT47, and CT45, 
are composite arrays that have gene coding sequences within them. And so there's a copy number variation among those. So wondering now, what's the consequence of that? Not only between males and females, um, but across different individuals. We also had um, the sex chromosomes have this um, really cool region called the pseudoautosomal region that exists in mammals where um, the two sex chromosomes will actually recombine. And we had the PAR at the time that we went to publication of CHM13, but not HG002. And we were able to look at what types of repeats were on the PAR. And we found two giant satellite arrays, um, Kalike and Pasife. And both of those arrays that I'm showing you in the bottom had slightly different CPG methylation profiles. Um, the one on the left had very little um, methylation, even though it had a pretty standard CPG density, whereas the one on the right had very high methylation. Um, and interestingly enough, the one on the right, even though it had a higher, higher methylation, um, actually had uh, more signal of transcription than the one on the left. So there seems to be some rules that are violated. Um, one of the things that we had always assumed with epigenetics is if it's methylated, uh, the, the sequences wouldn't be transcribed. And we actually found many, many cases that are, violate that rule. And so understanding how hypermethylation can lead to active transcription in some repeat arrays versus others is um, another question that we want to ask moving forward. And so just to sort of take everything that we, we did in this paper and across the whole consortium, um, we discovered that there's a really high repeat diversity in human genomes. Um, and that's particularly notable in satellite arrays and these composite sequences, many of which carry genes. We also know that transcriptional profiles of TEs are highly correlated with sequence divergence and epigenetic features such as CPG methylation. And so I'm actually on slide 16, I forgot to say that. Um, we also identified several cases where transposable elements and macrosatellite arrays actually can act as very strong promoters and enhancers to promote transcription of nearby sequences. And we highlighted a couple of these in the paper and many others in the supplements. Um, but most importantly, what we wanted to provide were methods and resources to study the impact of repeats on chromosome function and evolution across all humans and in fact, all genomes as they're getting developed. And certainly um, these resources will be updated with every genome that gets done. Um, and so, you know, just to sort of close this out, as you can see on slide 17, a lot of people were involved in this work. Um, a lot of people in my own lab. And again, I want to highlight that this was really student led. Um, uh, and, and that is one of the things that makes me the most excited about this project. Um, and we had a great team working with the T2T consortium and I couldn't list all 130 people that were involved. But I did list all the TE team that was involved in the writing of the manuscript and, and refining all of that data. Um, and with that, I can take any questions. Yeah, thank you so much. This is such an amazing work. And um, yeah, it, it's so impressive and, um, you know, a great achievement. <laughs> that, and this was solved. And um, yeah, I think I have more questions that go into the future, if that's okay. Mm -hmm. I wanted to ask. So um, with that information, especially with, um, you know, the that the data seems to point that there's a lot of um, 
epigenetic regulation and maybe a, a person specific or maybe even headed like that we um, pass it on to the next generation. Yep. Uh, do you think if one day we have a lot of, you know, computing power, do you think that this will lead to a more personalized assessment, like what treatments will work, which treatments won't work because we, we solved this mystery? Do you think that holds the key for a better treatment plan? For I, yeah, I know exactly. You know, in, in terms of thinking about personalized medicine, right? So right now, the state of personalized medicine, as we look at a tiny number of single nucleotide polymorphisms that actually do exist in the human genome. And so now that we have this reference, um, we can expand that number of polymorphisms that we can start to screen for to really get that personalized approach. And I think one of the, the, the huge advances is the technology that went into this assembly and the technology that went into the data analysis. So as, as the technology gets better, cheaper assemblies, faster turnaround time and more accuracy, I think we are going to start to be taking a genome scale approach at personalized medicine rather than a targeted approach at 0.1% of the genome. Um, because there are a lot of repeats that, that we didn't know that they influenced chromosome stability, for example, um, predisposition to cancer, um, pancreatic cancer biomarkers are actually HSAT2 arrays that are highly amplified. Um, so I, I totally agree with you. I think this, this really is the start of actually moving into um, the next consortium, which is actually called the um, HPRC, which is the Human Pan Genome Reference Consortium where they're taking 350 human genomes from diverse individuals across the globe and der deriving a compendium of all the variation that exists potentially in the human population to get an idea of what's normal and what's not. And so I think you're absolutely right. There are actually some startup companies that have just come out based on um, repeat therapeutics, which I think is a pretty interesting area of research. Yeah, it's fascinating. And, um... I don't, yeah, my, my, you know, my theory was related to the fear memory um, work that I did as a PhD student was that maybe um, that's where trauma can be passed on to the next generation. But I know that's quite far away from the actual work. So, well, you know, that's not that far. I mean, there, there are quite a number of labs that are now working, um, myself included, I'm actually doing a, a collaboration with people on non-model systems, looking at transgenerational epigenetic inheritance. Um, and there's some theories out there that, that, that modifications of that epigenetic inheritance may actually be related to specific disorders such as autism spectrum disorder, um, metabolism disorders. Um, and I, I think the, um, the Dutch famine is, is a great example of that where, where grandchildren of individuals that, that survived the famine had uh, different epigenetic modifications that led to um, actually a different way of metabolizing glucose and other metabolites and overweight and, and perhaps led to some of our early onset diabetes cases. So I think that transgenerational epigenetic inheritance is a really fascinating question and one that we're just starting to tease apart now. And that's, of course, going to involve 
non-model systems, right? Like non-human systems, just because we la we live so long. Yes, exactly. I think there's one. I forgot the name of the. I talked with them at some point. Uh, there's one a data set of um, like huge data set of uh, bigger cities in the U.S. where they follow along families and they also started to uh, they collected DNA and also started to look into epigenetics from uh, um, families and that are um, like in distress where either uh, a parent has addiction problems or other socioeconomic stress factors play a role and I think it's a huge biggest data sets across generations. I think they have now three generations. So, yeah, you know, it's I, interesting that you said that there's a, I think it's Finland that actually has the decode project, um, which has one of the most extensive DNA repositories that, that dates back many, many generations. Um, and now expanding that to epigenetics. I mean, I think that's, that's one of the cool things about the newer sequencing technologies that are coming out like Oxford Nanopore and now PacBio is that not only do they facilitate, you know, getting, you know, chromosome level assemblies, if not T to T assemblies, you can take that same sequencing data and pull out epigenetic information, such as CPG methylation calls and other types of um, methylation calls, uh, which is particularly important in plants, for example. And so being able to tap into one sample and get multiple forms of information out, I think is really going to change the landscape of how we do some of these studies, particularly with large um, cohort studies. Yeah, now I know it's a fragile families and well-being study from Princeton University, but it's a huge study with like um, across the U.S. Uh, anyways, yeah, yeah no, I think all of these databases become really powerful. I mean, we can, you know, I, I keep joking to my students. I'm like, you know, we could just sit at a computer for the next decade and just mine all back mine data. Right. So now that we have all of this information of, you know, annotated reads that we didn't have before um, and it was basically junk that was tossed out. Now we can actually start to look, you know, is there variation in the population? Does it stratify in particular ways? Yeah, it's amazing. I'm really looking forward to the future. <laughs> yeah, it's it's pretty bright, at least in terms of genome science. <laughs> Exactly. <laughs> well, we have to look on the bright side. Uh, Serena, please go ahead. So, yeah, um, uh, sir, thank you for a wonderful talk. It's amazing how many contributors all put, came together for this. And um, just, uh, uh, you know, and the results are uh, have such implications. I understand that the mining, yeah, let the mining begin. We're just getting started <laughs> here. Yeah. Um, I'm. You know, and particularly, you said the follow-on study, a, a cohort of 300 um, individual genomes and looking at the variation across that population, compendium you use the term, um, fascinating. I'm are interested in, um, so as, uh, surely you must have some insight on some of the early sort of, you know, hits that we're getting in terms of as the mining begins. Are there any highlights that you can unpack for us in terms of um, either particular functional relationships with these um, these new sequences or the, uh, new variations, 
or or even some structural insights or that's actually a fantastic question um and and as the the person that basically we we joke about this all the time um the huge lift was for the assembly team until the end and then the huge lift was for us right so we were the caboose that brought up the rear of the train we couldn't actually do any annotations until the assembly was completely refined we tried it we did it we got data but then it would change um and that's because these repetitive regions tend to be the things that are most often misassembled and so we we're trying to like take this step back and like okay we're gonna wait till you guys you know really refine these 350 genomes but we really want to look at them now. <laughs> and so we're starting to sort of look preliminarily at like sex chromosomes, for example. Um, but we're trying not to make too many judgments until those refined assemblies happen because the assembly team can come back to us and go, oh, wait, no, we collapsed that. That was actually an artificial duplication. Um, that's just a computational algorithm. But, you know, it's, it is a stay tuned, you know, season two is coming. <laughs> sort of oh, I, I get it. I get it. Do you have some? <laughs> do you have some trailers for us for season two? I wish I did. <laughs> um, there are a, a few loci that I'm, I'm particularly interested in. Um, I think the the gene composite loci are ones that I'm I'm paying particular attention to and. We're starting to pull out long reads that we can really verify copy number before we get an assembly. Um, and so that's sort of what we're dipping into now, but we're just starting to get the sequencing done. And that's actually um, led by uh, Karen Mia and, and Adam Philippi and Evan Eichler. They're, they're really heading up that HPRC consortium. It must be nail biting for you. It kind of, Yeah, you know. But we're also those people that get to look at all the junk, right? Like, which I hate. I hate when people call it junk. But um, you are know, they still the calling it junk? Like, you know, sadly, they are. Crazy. <laughs> I think somebody said to me, "One man's junk is another man's treasure." I'm like, "It's all treasure. It's all treasure." <laughs> well, thank you so much. Um, I we I really look forward to hearing you know the mining activities and the the gold that emerges. Yeah, I think it'll be interesting, particularly, you know, one of the things that's come out of of some of this work is um, human genome data sovereignty. And so, you know, we're really trying to push um, towards uh, an all-inclusive assembly network where we have scientists and cell lines and individuals from across the globe representing many different populations um, because that's really going to give us an idea of what what human is, um, rather than just looking at you know a subset of people from you know Buffalo, New York, or wherever. And so we're dealing with a lot of consortia that are involved in data sovereignty and indigenous peoples that are like you know what if we're going to share our data, we'd like to have a part in that. We'd like to have a say in that. Um, and so I think you know the the consortium is actually taking on quite a bit in terms of Elsie as well, which is pretty exciting. Wonderful, thank you very much. Doctor, that was a fantastic um, talk and I'm actually gonna be spending weeks rereading and re-listening again just to yeah. kind of understand some of the amazing things you were covering. Um, so please forgive me if my questions are a little bit um, dumb, because I was just trying no, to do what I could. No dumb questions, number one. 
And number two, this is a humongous amount of data and a humongous amount of work that normally would have gone into like 10 or 20 papers. Um, so it, you know, it, it's very dense, <laughs> dense material. Absolutely. Um, and this, so this is to my uh, first question here um, was, uh, does, does this mean that in looking at these uh, re repeated sequences um, that we could actually look at other uh, animals, other species, and actually get a much better understanding of how alike and unalike we are to the Absolutely. other creatures? That's exactly what we want to do. Um, and, and knowing, you know, how these repeats can define gene regions, but also um, there are really interesting features of genomes where there are blocks of DNA sequences that are compartments. And those compartments can actually define regulatory regions, um, transcriptional profiles in a cell-specific manner. And we're finding that some of these repeats can actually move those compartments around or at least change the edges in a species-specific way. And so um, and that's exactly what we want to do is start to look at, you know, what's happening in all of our ape relatives, um, what's happening as we move further out the phylogenetic tree and look at, you know, carnivores and ruminants, or if we look at um, marsupials, which is an area that I'm very interested in, um, or start going further out and looking at, you know, reptiles and amphibians and, and birds and then just keep going, right? And then soon we're doing what the Earth Biogenomes Project is is um, has a goal to do, and, and we're actually a member of that consortium as well, which is to sequence all life on Earth. Um, and it's a lofty goal, but I think it's a necessary one for conservation, for understanding biology, for understanding genomes. That could have remarkable implications for just um, answering some questions like, where did we all come from? All, everything. Yep. That would be absolutely mind-blowing. And uh, Katarina's questions actually inspired me to ask a second one. Um, and that was, um, have you had a chance to do something like get any sort of DNA sample from, I don't know, like a prehistoric human or someone from way, way, way back and actually see if... Uh, the, the repeaters um, sequences have changed much over say thousands of years or if we're kind of stagnant biologically or, or, or what? That's a really fantastic question. And it's a great question for a number of reasons. One, there are groups that have actually done um, uh, Denisovans and Neanderthal genomes um, and even some older genomes for, for no longer um, uh, extant humans or human species, I should say. But um, what's interesting about that is that a lot of those samples are very fragmented. So it's very hard to get a good feel of, of what the repetitive landscape is because we can't get these long reads. Um, and it's a bit like thinking of um, a puzzle. And if that puzzle was... Um, a hundred piece puzzle of a picture of the Saharan desert, it might be a little easier to put that together than a hundred thousand piece puzzle that is a picture of the Saharan desert, right? Where every little piece looks exactly the same. Um, and so that's, that's going to be, I think one of the next um, big phases is, is not just trying to maximize technology so that we can get better sequence data from some of these samples. That's why Neanderthals are such a, 
a, a great system to study because I tend to be um, frozen. So there's a, a lot and frozen quickly. Um, so there's a lot better preservation of some of the DNA. But um, I think where we're really going to see some advances is ancestral reconstructions, where if we take a whole bunch of those samples, and even though they're fragmented, we can start to develop a, a reconstruction that is a consensus of what those genomes look like. Um, and so I, it, it's a great question. And, you know, it's one that, that people are thinking of in terms of species as they're going extinct. Um, I think it's one of, of significance in terms of conservation genomics, because if we think about it, you know, so many species have gone extinct just in the last 40 years. Um, and so can we reconstruct some of those populations? Um, can we identify diversity in other populations that may actually help us narrow down what we should and shouldn't be worried about conserving and when we come up with breeding schemes? This was particularly important in, in a genome that we were involved in, um, the koala. So um, these are fantastic questions. And yes, we want to know the answers, but we don't. Thank you very much. That is absolutely fascinating. And um, I had a little bit of a Jurassic Park feel there when you Yeah, it a little bit. <laughs> Thank you very much again for the talk. I'll yield the floor for now and let other people ask questions. Thank you so much. I've got a question. That's cool. Fire away. Uh, so um, in my brief like attempt at grad school, uh, one of the cool things uh, that was, um, I guess, and the project that I was doing was like uh, dealing with some of the repetitive uh, kinds of repetitive uh, DNA uh, sequences that could form like certain structures uh, oh, yeah. called guanine quadruplexes. G4s. Like, like, G4. I love G4s. <laughs> yes. So my question is like, I was, I'm super curious to uh, kind of like, I guess, ask if like you have seen like any like, um, how do I say it? Uh, if like in the, the the transposable regions or repetitive regions that you've seen, if you've seen like a increased number of or or a correlation with like neighborhood G four sequences. So that's a fantastic question. So we identified um, in this particular paper actually. One of the satellites that a grad student from Jen Gurton's lab identified, actually a postdoc, excuse me, identified is um, a repetitive sequence that we think is an ancestral co-option from a transposable element. And we, it's called Walu Set, for lack of, you know, it's, it's his name and I love it. And what we identified is that when it's tandemly arrayed, which exists on the acrocentric chromosomes of human, um, it creates, and it's not the sequence itself. If you put it into a G4 um, quadruplex predictor, you don't see anything. But when you copy and paste a bunch of these sequences next to one another, it's actually the junction between two sequences that creates these G4 peaks. And so when you get hundreds of thousands of these all repeated, repeated together, you get these giant G4 structures. And so... Um, we literally have only looked at that one. So there could be others like that across the human genome. Literally, it's wide open. Um, but it's interesting that you asked that because we got into G4s uh, because of another genome that we're involved in, which is a deep sea organism called the SALP. 
and we were having a really hard time sequencing it with nanopores. Um, and what we discovered is that it was G4 quadruplexes that were actually blocking the pores and they existed around transposable elements. Um, and so that's sort of a backhanded answer to your question because we still don't know really. Um, but I think they're an incredibly interesting feature of genomes that are underexplored. And so for those of you who don't like know what they are, they're these G quadruplexes that actually perform or form these really high dense structures. They're like parallel sheets that are right on top of each other. Yeah, they are really interesting. Uh, the, I read the hypothesis paper at some point, like years ago, the, to, because they were shown, the, the, some of them were shown in living cells, mm -hmm. and um, especially the eye motif ones, uh, they are dependent on pH and magnesium change um, so right. uh, I hypothesized that they would maybe contribute to synaptic plasticity, but then I um, didn't end up get getting funded for funding for it. But now, recently, oh, that's unfortunate. It, yeah, it was. I got actually because of that. I was frustrated, so we published the hypothesis paper in the hope that somebody else will try it out. And then recently. You know, something that goes in the direction was published, but I got invitations for a lot of genetics <laughs> conferences <laughs> for that. Uh, That's fantastic. Well, they're elusive to study, right? So, you know, um, the question before, you know, somebody had, had started studying them in grad school, they're very hard to study because, you know, identifying them in, in physiological conditions is different than predicting them from a DNA sequence, right? So, um, yeah, so yeah, I think they're going to be very, yeah. Yeah, antibodies, like there were antibodies, for sure there's more now than when I wrote this. And my plan was to use the squids, the giant um, squid neuron axon. And All right. It, you can just um, you can just squeeze it out. You can squeeze out the neuron, the axon, and then you can um, put antibodies on while you do stuff to it. So that's oh, what wow. I try. <laughs> but, and then yeah, but anyways, uh, maybe one day. <laughs> no, that's pretty cool. You should do some chip seek with that and identify how those sequences shift. After you activate an exon, yeah, exactly. Cool. That would be really cool. Uh, anyways, <laughs> thanks for coming, for mentioning this cure. <laughs> so thank you so much. That was a fascinating work, and whatever it just came to my mind that was about the programmable CRISPR-Cas9, because you just mentioned about the CPG binding protein, and we know about the long-term epigenetic silencing and how we can use it in a therapeutic, I mean, setting. And another one was about the pangenome analysis and how it can be important, I mean, in the future and how we can have a better approaches around the antimicrobial resistance. So I was just wondering, maybe you have any thoughts around that? Um, you mean in terms of, of diversity that leads to antimicrobial resistance or in using CRISPR technology yes. for modifying yes. genomes, in particular humans? Um, so I don't, I don't actually, I mean, this, this, this data is also new. I know there's quite a bit of, you know, 
work that's been done, particularly in gut microbiomes and trying to tease apart microbial sequences as well as gut epithelial cell sequences. So taking a sample and pulling out human sequence or a bird or whatever, you know, the model organism is and their um, cognizant microbiome and asking how they interact with one another. And it's a really fascinating field. And it obviously involves immunology and many cell surface proteins. And it's an area that I'm not as familiar with. Um, but interestingly, <clears throat> some of the genomes that, that were involved in, particularly some of the marsupial genomes, is, is exactly that, is, is trying to identify, um, and other scientists are working on this now, but trying to identify um, antimicrobial peptides that actually exist in areas like the pouch, which is a really kind of gross area, actually, um, where the pouch young actually develop externally. Um, they're very naive. They have no hind legs, no, you know, hearing system. They can smell. They have a, a, a stomach. Um, and all that development happens externally. Sex differentiation happens externally in this really dirty environment. And so there's clearly a, a lot of antimicrobials um, that exist in that environment. And so understanding what some of those are um, in that particular genome is going to be an interesting frontier as well. For sure. I mean, uh, having those data beside the human. I mean, clinical strain, especially, it can be very yeah. interesting. Yeah. Hi, this is Jake. I had a question about the technology used to sequence and gather data. Um, how automated is it? And is it speeding up uh, based on new technology and new breakthroughs? So those are great questions. It's, it's semi-automated at this point. Um, but not great. And, and the reason I say that is it's the DNA extraction that becomes so critical. Um, for Illumina or short read sequencing technology, you can do really automated preps for that. You can have robots that are processing lots of samples at a time, putting, making libraries, extracting DNA, making libraries, putting them on the sequencer. When it comes to the longer read sequences, um, it's a lot harder to get that automated. And I know there are companies that are pursuing that now. Um, because you just have to be so careful with that DNA. And I think that's really the bottleneck um, that is, is going to be one of the things that has to change, right? There has to be a way to do this in a high throughput fashion if we're ever going to translate this to personalized medicine. As far as the sequencing goes, um, yeah, these instruments every year, their throughput is higher. The number of flow cells that can run with individual samples increases dramatically, um, you know, we used to be able to do, you know, one genome um, in a week in terms of data production, not necessarily assembly. And now we can do 50 in a day um, from the same instrument. So, you know, that is definitely technology that's advancing. Some is just maximizing the technology that exists now and changing some of the chemistry. And some of it is actually changing the technology itself. Um, so I don't know if that answers the question, but... Um, it's not as high throughput as we would want it to be, but it's certainly better than it was even five years ago. And is, is uh, AI used at all in the, you know, analyzing all the data? That's an interesting question. And I know there's some machine learning algorithms that are in place. No one has really 
to my knowledge, implemented AI, but I wouldn't be at all surprised if that sort of feedback is not actually being built into some of the computational algorithms. And this is something that that doesn't really get talked about a lot, but really should. So there's a lot of discussion of the actual tech, right? The sequencers, um, the data that comes off the sequencers, but not a lot of discussion about the algorithms that go into managing the data, cleaning the data, error correcting the data, assembling the data, checking the data, polishing the data, right? Like all of these steps, doing gene annotations, doing repeat annotations, that software is always changing. Um, and it's always people that are writing it. And so I think the limit of, and, and, and the speed with which we can do some of these assemblies, you know, even repeat annotations that we did two years ago when we were first starting this took weeks and now they take days and soon they'll take hours and then they'll take minutes. And that's all because the computational algorithms that are going into it are speeding up. The GPU time is speeding up. You know, computer technology is definitely driving um, these innovations. Uh, and, and that's, that was a big problem with early nanopore sequencers is you just didn't have a big enough computer to actually hold the data as it came off the instrument. Um, and now we do. Right. And then you didn't have big enough fiber optic cables to move them from one institution to another. And now we have the cloud. So I, you know, it, that doesn't really address the AI question, but these advances are all happening. And I think they will be the next phase of what's going to change the future of personalized medicine. That's great. Thanks. Um, I wanted to check with you in between how much time you still have, because it's getting quite late. Um, that is completely up to you guys. I can hang out for a few more minutes if you guys want. I also know some of you guys are like way later than I am. So, oh, I, I think we're fine. A few more, like how much time you give us, we we're happy to. Yeah, if anybody's got other questions and. I can hang out till about 10.30 my time. And then if there are other questions, just ping me, you know, drop me an email. Yeah, sure. Okay, I'm so we have time for- yeah, I have a question, yeah. Don, yep, John, go ahead. Yeah, I have a question. So in, in general, we have assumption that uh, the cell differentiation is uh, related to uh, uh, the telomere lens. Uh, so does that, how true is this statement? And I, uh, I'm not sure, see. And uh, so how about the cell de-differentiation? Are we supposed to see a, 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 a telomere lens uh, become mm, longer? So the reason I'm giggling is that I was just at a talk last week that was talking about telomere length. And the person sitting next to me was like, we still don't know. <laughs> and okay. so, I mean, there's definitely some link between aging and telomere length. Right. So, and that's, that's an indirect relationship with telomerase activity, which starts to shut down. Um, and that's sort of where that de-differentiation comment comes from, right? So telomerase activity tends to be higher in things like stem cells, which are undifferentiated. And so the higher the telomerase activity, the longer your telomeres can be. And there was that infamous study or famous study, I shouldn't say infamous, that was done on the astronauts. Um, looking at telomere length between um, the twins, right, where one went into space and one didn't, um, and comparing those telomere lengths. And there, there definitely was a correlation between being in space, but as soon as the individual came back, those telomere lengths tended to recalibrate a little bit. Um, and so that, that sort of was, was kind of surprising. 
um, for exactly the point you raised, right? So we have these preconceived notions of what telomere length actually defines for cells. I think one of the problems is assessing that overall length with high accuracy is now going to be uh, not only possible, but possible to do in allele-specific fashion. So we can start to look not just at a chromosome's telomeres, but each allele, paternal and maternal, right? And do they vary? And are they reset? Um, and so I think, you know, that's a huge area. And I think a, a, a lot of people are working on it. And I don't have that accurate answer for you because I don't think we know. Thank you. Yeah, does anyone have any questions? Uh, in the meantime, uh, I wanted to ask when you mentioned to sequence all these different species, which is really interesting. Um, do you by any chance collaborate with uh, the Australian um, researcher Jenny Graves? <laughs> Jenny Graves was my PhD advisor. Oh, <laughs> Yeah. So yeah. So yeah. We talk a lot. <laughs> uh, she was she was one of the first speakers, and she was so wonderful. <laughs> yeah, she's amazing. Um, and and she actually really influenced me in more ways than just science. So, like, she really influenced the way I think about um, training people and think about asking biological questions and not being afraid to be wrong. Right. So like, sometimes I'll come up with a hypothesis and I'm like, oh, well, that was wrong. <laughs> um, and yeah, she's fantastic. She's awesome. She's yeah, actually, I she's closed her lab. Um, but she still does a lot of science. She's, she's, I don't, I don't know if she told you her title. She's thinker in residence. Um, oh, <laughs> unofficial title yet you it, it oh, so she, she writes a lot of theory papers and just really promoting science and promoting science communication and and really just poking people to think about you know these deep questions yeah yeah she yeah she she gave a really amazing talk about um microchromosomes and oh yeah yeah <laughs> and the dragons yep yeah, that was wonderful. Yeah. Uh, Jamie, do you have a question? I did actually. Um, this is actually from someone in the audience. Um, we were wondering, Doctor, if you had any book that you could recommend to somebody who inspired uh, that inspired you into um, this kind of work that you could maybe recommend to us to go away and have a look at. Like a nonfiction book? I, I you know, yeah. um, there is. What is it called? I've just... Trevor's book, um, Genes in Conflict. It's called Genes, Genes in Conflict. Conflict. Yeah, it's a little old now, but I love that book. Um, and another one was um, Max King's Chromosome Evolution book, which just inspired me when I was a grad student. And, uh, you know, that's where I my eyes were really open. I'm like, wow, there is the complete diversity of chromosome forms on this planet from species with one chromosome to species with 16,000 and why. <laughs> um, so, yeah. That's amazing. I've made a note of that as well. That was from our uh, audience member, Victoria. So thank you very much, doctor. You're welcome. Hey, Victoria, welcome. Do you have a question maybe or um, 
I saw you just arrived, so so I was just checking before we closed. Oh, thank you very video. much. Now I just ran over here as quickly as I could, and I look forward to listening to the replays. And I am, uh, yeah. Thank you so much, Rachel, for being here. Yeah, no, thanks for joining. And you know, it, it, it's great that that was it you that asked about the book. Um, I think a different Victoria. Was, we have a, we have many Victoria? science Victorias here. It was a different yeah, Victoria I mean, in the audience. It, it's great to hear what books influence other people as well, right? So um, I think one of the books that influenced me when I was an undergrad is actually Steve O'Brien's book about um, cheetahs and genetic conservation. Uh, hi, Parth. How are you? I, I like to know that you have a, a book suggestion, or do you also have a question? Uh, no, I just I, I, I came in when uh, I think, uh, first of all, thank you for doing the room and thank you for uh, getting me on stage. Um, am, I, am I audible because I'm outside? You'll get some lot of background sound. I hope it's okay. Um, the thing is, um, I, I came in when I think uh, Dr. Rachel was speaking about genome sequencing and data analysis, right? So I just thought I'll make a quick comment on that. I think she's spot on on what she said. We have a lot of work to do when it comes to analysis analysis of genome data. Uh, forget about eukaryotes, uh, higher organisms. Even in microbial genomes, yep. uh, the genome sequencing technology has made such giant strides. The, the, the functional annotation of the genomes the rate at which it is going on, it has not yet caught up with the speed at which sequences are being uh, uh, being churned out on almost on a daily basis. The yep. nanopore sequencing, for example, uh, uh, which was developed by Dave Deemer in, in UCSC, uh, with that sequencing technology, you can sequence an entire bacterial genome within a couple of hours. But yeah. sequencing a genome is just the tip of the iceberg. One has to do meaningful annotation of the entire genome. I think that is where we are lacking and there is still a lot of work to do. I think the future lies in getting many high schools, right from high school students level up for undergraduates all the way through PhD. I think people should be, uh, should be exposed to things like functional annotation of genomes. And uh, yeah, that's the way to go because otherwise there will be such a huge amount of data with no meaningful interpretation of the data. I thought I'll just I add that comment. I could not agree more. Um, and that's something, so we've got a program at UConn that we started called the Genome Ambassadors Program that's specifically to do that. It's to get people um, in K to 12, like excited about the idea of looking at a computer to look at DNA sequencing data, right? Like just not being afraid of, of the computation aspect of it. Um, because I think that's gonna be a huge hurdle. It already is, it already is a huge hurdle. And also there are, uh... There is so little, we, I mean, even though we know a lot about the non-coding uh, RNAs and the non-coding part of the genome, we still know so little. It's a genomic dark matter and there are, even though there are a lot of algorithms available to look for uh, certain sequence patterns and motifs to find non-coding uh, RNAs and non-coding genomic material, we still haven't caught up with the complexity with which genomes uh, occur and also evolve. Uh, in micro microbial genomes are, are microbial genomes. So I can say uh, that at least from the microbial genome perspective, we know so very, very little. And non-coding RNAs, they have not been annotated as much as they should be. 
and the interesting thing is non-coding RNAs they are not universally conserved and each species so even subspecies will have a set of non-coding RNAs very unique to them so if one were to use a like a universal algorithm to look for these non-coding RNAs one is likely to miss them in a new genome that is one one problem the other thing is really hard to understand you it's really loud I, i'm not sure if that's okay okay Catherine, so give me 10 minutes time then i'll speak okay i'm out okay uh, yeah we we about to close the room but um yeah we can have follow-up questions and maybe a follow-up um at some point but thank you Katarina? so much Sorry. Uh, yeah. I have an idea. Perhaps, Parth, you'd like to put your comments into the room chat, and then they'll be there. That could work. Then you don't have to wait. Thank you so much for bringing your ideas to the stage. Yeah. Do, does anyone have another question? Uh, Dennis, I saw you joined. Welcome. Uh, did you have a question? We have like a few minutes left, so if you want to have a last question, please go ahead. Thank you so much. I don't have a question at this time. Really appreciate it. Great. Um, yeah, if um, we we took a lot of your time, I hope you enjoyed it. It was such a wonderful talk, and your work is so interesting. Uh, Jamie, do you Actually, have another? Catherine, yeah, can I just squeeze one in? Sorry, I was trying to unmute in time to, to, to call. Um, I was curious, and I don't know if this is related at all, Doctor, but you mentioned about, um, was it the RNA, uh, RNA being truncated? Is that right? Um, in terms of what? Um, well, well, when you were talking about uh, when they were separating or something, they were becoming truncated, is that right? Um, I was what I was wondering about is when when these things you were mentioning about them being truncated, like is that on purpose when when it does that, or like does the the genes or the cells or whatever say okay start truncating from now, or do they just kind of happen after a certain time? Are you talking about different RNAs, or are you talking about telomeres? I'm trying to remember which part you said in the talk, so, I'm, so please 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 disregard. No, it's it. okay. I don't remember what I said. <laughs> Yeah, that, no, that's okay. That, maybe, I'll, maybe I'll get Catherine to send you the question later on. When I yeah, look no, that would be thank great. Yeah, my brain's probably fried as well. <laughs> no, no, thanks so much. Thank you so much. I have to say a thank you to um, Katarina and everybody that's joined this. This has been really enjoyable. I totally needed this on a Monday. Um, this has been great to talk to, to, to everybody, hear their ideas. Um, I'm reading the comments as they're coming through. Um, and just, you know, being curious about, you know, what the next phase of, of, of genomics is going to be. And I think it's, um, it's literally infinite and I'm, I'm very excited to be here. Yeah. Thank you so much. And I'm excited mm. that, um, we got to learn from, uh, such an amazing scientist like you today. It also made my day <laughs> and oh, uh, humbling. Thank you. Mine too. <laughs> Definitely mine too. Absolutely. So thank you so, so much. And well, thank you for inviting me. Yeah. And yes, it makes you. me in a positive way towards the future, which is so Yeah. Nice. The future's bright, at least in some places. Yep. yep. I agree. Yeah. Thank you so much, Dr. O'Neill. Really right. looking forward to the mining activities. Yeah, well, let's let's all get on board. <laughs> yeah. 
And please feel free to come back anytime when you need another Monday like this. Okay. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, to chat Definitely with you about them. Come back. All right, this was fantastic. Thank you guys so much for introducing me to this group. It's awesome. Okay, great. Yeah, thank you. We are very happy to hear that. Um, yeah, so this was so much fun. Thank you so much. Thanks everyone for coming and asking wonderful questions. And um, yeah, follow the club. If you like discussions like this, uh, come back and per continue participating in uh, discussions about science and what's great things that are going on in the world in science. <laughs> so thank you, everyone. And uh, please enjoy the rest of your evening, Rachel. And thank you so much. All right, you too. Thank you, everyone. Good night. Thank you, Doctor. Bye. Have a good night. Bye, everybody. Good night. Thanks. Good night. Three, two, one. I'm closing the room. Bye. <laughs>